This is Scrum Dynamics. Hi everyone, my name is Neil Benson and you're listening to Scrum Dynamics. The purpose of the podcast is to help everyone use the Scrum framework to successfully implement Microsoft business applications. That could be Dynamics 365, Power Apps, Power BI or Flow. If you're implementing any of those, I think you deserve a perfect Microsoft business applications project. I think people using the Scrum framework can slash their project budgets, shrink their delivery timelines, mitigate technical risks, and have lots more fun delivering software that everyone will love. If you've been practicing Scrum for a while, you're already familiar with the Daily Scrum. It's a daily event for the development team to check in and synchronize their work. I've been practicing Scrum for 10 years, often with multiple teams at a time, so I participated in probably over 3,000 daily scrums with Dynamics 365 teams. And I want to help you level up your daily scrums. So I've compiled a quiz that'll help you rate your daily scrum. And if you'd like to improve, you can sign up for my 10-day challenge. I'll send you one daily scrum improvement idea every day for 10 days, including three questions to ask in your daily scrum that are way better than the suggested questions in the scrum guide. Take the quiz and then sign up for the challenge at customary.com slash daily scrum. That's the word customer with a Y on the end, dot com slash daily scrum. Now let's get into it. Andrew Bibby is a two-time business applications MVP with over 12 years experience implementing Dynamics CRM and Dynamics 365 customer engagement. Andrew is passionate about the Dynamics 365 user group and a key person in the D365 UG committee in the UK. He's presented at lots of user group meetings and conferences across the UK and Europe. He's facilitated hackathons. And my favorite thing about Andrew is that he seems to be the main instigator of the pre-user group social evenings. And anyone that organizes social events for Dynamics 365 nerds deserves a beer, at least in my book. Andrew had a background in software development and then as a CRM architect with several Microsoft partners. And as you're going to find out, Andrew's main role these days is as an independent advisor for larger Microsoft customers implementing Dynamics 365. In this episode, we discuss the value of using an independent advisor, especially if you're an enterprise customer embarking on a significant program, or if you're a mid-sized customer that doesn't have Dynamics 365 expertise or capacity in your team. If you're a Microsoft partner and your customer has hired an independent advisor, then you need to work with that person, have them act on your behalf, coaching your customer to being a great customer that's easy to work with and has a successful experience working with your delivery team. This is going to be a long episode. Andrew shares tons of valuable experience about a successful digital transformation program he was involved with at Devon Financial Services. There's lots of great advice, so strap on your headphones, get out your notepads and join me as I catch up with Andrew Bibby. Andrew Bibby, welcome to Scrum Dynamics. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Hi Neil, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to to be on. I wanted to invite you onto the Scrum Dynamics show to share your experience with a successful project. But before we get into that, Andrew, I wonder if you could introduce yourself to the Scrum Dynamics audience, share a little bit about yourself with us and share with us your background in Microsoft business applications. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Andrew Bibby. Um, I'm a Dynamics 365 consultant in the UK. Um, I work with Dynamics 365 mainly online now uh, and mainly for financial services organizations in the UK. Uh, that's what I've been doing for the past sort of 12 years that I've been working with Dynamics. So I started in 2007 working for partners primarily. So I went through a few different partners delivering projects for clients. And then uh, about five years ago, I switched. I was poacher turned gamekeeper. Uh, I switched to the customer side. So now I generally work on customer projects and help those customers with Dynamics, with their Dynamics knowledge, uh, making sure that their projects are as, as successful as possible. Great. And I noticed, Andrew, all over LinkedIn recently, you've been posting pictures from these wonderful Dynamics 365 user group meetings mm. across the UK. That thing's just blowing up. What's the secret to the phenomenal growth of the user group meetings in the UK? Yeah, it's going really well, to be honest. Um, last couple of years, probably last three or four years, it's really started to kind of accelerate. We had a meeting yesterday in uh, London Paddington at Microsoft and had about 100 people there and many tracks we have uh, sorry many different sessions so we had about 10 sessions on done by various people in the community talking about lots of different topics uh, and we also had a session by Microsoft actually the product team flew over from Redmond um, to talk about customer insights and they ran a, a workshop uh, in Paddington as well so you know that's really really encouraging that Microsoft are getting so involved and they want to um, have product team members you know the real people that are actually designing and, and developing the product come over and show customers how to use it um, so that's brilliant and we've also got uh, another seven chapters around the UK as well now so again that's that's going really well um, so we have Scotland and York and uh, Manchester and let me see Birmingham uh, Bristol is on tomorrow night that's their first meeting so it's great for those people that can't get down to London and they, they can also get a lot of this great content as well and we've got ooh, Scott DeRoe and Mark Smith speaking in uh, and Mark Christie speaking in Bristol tomorrow night so you know some really, really good people. The uh, legends. I've seen loads of, yeah, yeah. They are the, um, the legends in their own lifetime. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's just great to see so much involvement from everybody in the community. That's really, really picked up in the last couple of years. And what's the secret behind the UK's user group meetings that are a whole day long? Our user groups, well, we've done one in the morning over breakfast, mm. but we usually do them in the evening and maybe have a few drinks afterwards. The UK user group meetings seem to be like a whole day conference. People have to get away from work for the day or get away from their project for a day. What's the secret behind that? Yeah, I think um, I think if we knew the secret, we'd probably you know <laughs> patent it. But um, <laughs> it's it's lots of really good people helping to organise. You know, I don't do you know, any of this remotely on my own. Um, Sarah Critchley, Scott Durow, uh we've got a really good uh, committee that that organises the events, and we all do a bit. Um, mainly Sarah, you know, cracking the whip. She's probably no Sarah. She's of a, an MVP for Dynamics. Yeah, she kind of keeps us all organized and gets uh, annoyed at us if we don't do what, what we're supposed to be doing. So, um, and she does loads of the organizing with Microsoft as well. Microsoft have always supported us really well by providing meeting space and speakers and things like that. They always come along and do a roadmap session. Uh, so that's really, really good. But, you know, it's um, consistency, having really good kind of, enthusiastic people to keep keep doing it every every three months or four months you know um and it's 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 because we love 
dynamics and we love the community really and we love we're very passionate about it and i think that's that's what rubs off on everybody and and when they come along to meetings that's what they see and that's what they they also um you know give back as well so we always have such a great crowd turnout for these events you know that's that's part of the reason i keep doing it um in terms of a day event this was started by adam Biro actually four or five years ago five years ago and he just decided okay let's do a whole day and we'll book people we'll book some speakers and it originally started with one track and and probably five sessions and then we went to two tracks and so we had 10 sessions and then now we're on three tracks and we're running regularly sort of 14 or 15 presentations so people get to choose a bit about what they want right. you get a huge variety of people coming to the events not just technical people lots of business people lots of you know people in between maybe functional or strategic or you know lots of different people and so we cover loads of different topics now it's not just sort of functionality and technical stuff uh, and again i think that's part of the success you know there's there's something for everybody the regional events tend to be in the evening and i think that's a different sort of demographic that we get to those events who can't take a day out of their schedules to come to london it might be difficult for them to get to london it might be a long way away so you know that's the reason to do those evening events as well and so you know they're going really really well as well we've added three or four more locations for those in the last probably 18 months uh so yeah they're going great too so whenever i was getting involved in the user group in the uk you know eight or nine years ago it was very nascent we were just getting started mm. Today, there seems to be hundreds, if not thousands of people from across the UK involved. Do you think it's a change in the mindset of some of the old timers who were involved at the start and more and more of those folks are becoming more community oriented? Or is it that the growth has been in people who are much more likely to get involved in user group kind of activities? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, that's something I've thought about. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you a shout out because you started the CRM user group in the UK back in 2011, which I found out the other day. I mean, I, I think I knew already, but I didn't know when. And I remember when I started out with Dynamics and I was looking for events to go to and things like that. And uh, and then I started to go to the events actually after Adam Vero sort of picked up the baton. I think that it is a combination of people that have been around for ages, uh, sharing their knowledge, keen to, to, to engage with other people. But also there is an influx of more people that are really interested in community. Microsoft are more interested in community. And there's kind of maybe a new generation coming in. You know, you've got people like Sarah Critchley and, you know, Eliza Benitez and, you know, uh, Megan Walker and these kind of people that have got such energy and passion. And they just want to kind of, they're, they're maybe waking up us old guard a little bit and showing us how it should be done you know explosion of social media explosion of um, community generally uh, that has really helped i think in the last couple of years and um, they probably are that you know a new group of people coming along kind of uh, changing the world i'm just riding on their coattails oh it's great to hear about the user groups in the uk going from strength to strength mm. you know they hold a special place in my heart but the reason I asked you to come on to the show was to share the lessons that you've learned from a recent successful project in your career and uh, share with some of the factors that made it successful. So I don't know if you can maybe start by highlighting a recent successful client, mm. tell us a little bit about them and how the project got started. Sure, yeah. you know, And, and I just wanted to say, um, I think this is a great series and uh, to thank you for putting it on. I think you know that's one of the reasons I do the user group is so that we can share experience, learn from each other about what works and what didn't. Uh, and this is another way to do that. You know, if we can 
if I cannot make a mistake that somebody else has made because they told me about it, you know, don't do that. You know, that's how we all build, build our experience together. So I think this is a great series. But I want to talk about a project that I did that finished last year. It was a big program for a financial services company in the UK. It was uh, a five-year program, but I worked on it for about three years. And it wow, was to... it's a pretty long program of work. Yeah, it was. It was a business transformation program. So quite an old company, uh, Devon Financial Services, and they maybe had quite a sort of entrenched way of working. Very successful, actually. You know, very successful, well thought of by their customers. But their IT systems and their processes were very clunky. And, and the longer those processes existed, you know, things got tweaked along the way. There was another step here, another step there. And before they knew it, actually, it was taking so long to sell a piece of business to a customer uh, that they were they felt like they were missing out on custom because they were doing so much admin and getting so kind of, you know, maybe frustrated with these systems and lots of double keying and things like that. So they knew that they had to do something to radically change how they work and bring it into the kind of 20, I guess the 21st century, really, because they're working quite an old-fashioned way. Wow. Um, but that's difficult for a company that has been around for so long and lots of people working there have worked there, you know, 10, 20, 25 years. So, you know, that's quite a culture shift to change technology, change the way they work, you know, change business processes and, and bring everybody along for the ride. So that's that's a difficult thing to do. It takes a long time. But massive benefits to doing that, you know, their their overall process. So they, they did some time in motion studies and worked out that actually to sell a piece of business, including the whole process to sell one product to a customer could take 15 or 16 hours. Whoa. And that was up. That was up from about 12 hours a few years before that. So that, you know, the longer it went on, the longer these processes were taking, the more frustrated people were getting because there's so much admin to be done, so many forms to fill in so much duplication of effort. And so a big driver for this project was to take a lot of that um, admin out of uh, of their processes and cut that, that time down, maybe by half. And obviously, if they've cut that time down by half, they can see a lot more customers and sell a lot more products. So that was um, you know, a big driver. To talk about, about the customer, they are about 1,500 people in, in the Midlands in the UK. There was about 800 users of the system. About 300 of those were financial advisors, and they were the people that went out and saw customers and sold them products, so things like pensions and mortgages and investment products. Uh -huh. So high-value, high-worth customers, actually. Lots of money involved, to be frank, but also they're very, very successful at managing that money for their customers, and so they had a lot of repeat business. Uh, and they, they would have relationships with customers with customers for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, their entire careers. So, you know, very loyal customer base. And their financial advisors, you know, as I say, they spent too much time doing all this admin um, and, and really when they wanted to be out and about seeing customers. So, you know, that's a primary driver for doing the project. Uh, but because there's so many people involved, you know, that's a big change process that the, the organization's going through, as well as doing other programs as well, like a digital transformation project to change how they interact with their customers digitally, you know, lots of other sort of um, sunsetting internal systems and things like that. So loads of stuff going on, lots of cogs moving, lots of plates spinning. But yeah, complex project, complex program. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, you said it was a five-year program and you were involved in the last three years, mm. presumably up until the time they went live. So yeah. what was going on in the project for the two years before you were involved? Yeah, I, I joined actually about... So the, the program's still going on, actually, uh, as a program will work. But um, I joined about a year or so in. They went, prior to me joining, they were going through uh, partner selection process, technology selection process, and also building their requirements as well. You know, So they did a lot of work, as I mentioned, time and motion studies and business analysis to work out, okay, if we want to try and cut this process down, and get these optimizations, How, which bits should we focus on? So they did lots of that work up before I started. And I joined basically when they already selected Dynamics against a different type of system. So, And they'd also selected an implementation partner to help them with that. So that's quite a long process for them. They chose Dynamics Online. That was a, a decision from the start that they would go online. And this was back in kind of 2014. So, you know, quite new to the UK. Um, yeah, I'd worked yep. on a couple of other online projects before then, but it was it was a bit bit cutting edge to be honest. Um, obviously, it's the norm now, but yeah, that's that's a little while back. So that was a not a brave decision, but that took some deciding because particularly around the security implications and all that kind of stuff that financial services organisations are very aware of. Obviously, um, yeah, they'd be a regulated entity, right? So they'd have to satisfy yeah. the regulator that they're taking appropriate risk mitigation steps and things like that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But actually, you know, going online offsets, what's the word? You know, it gives that responsibility to Microsoft for a lot of that stuff. And so they don't have to look after their own, so many on-prem systems, which they had enough, you know, enough to do on that, on that score already. So, you know, online really worked for them in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, and also doing lots of uh, work with Azure, um, Azure Service Bus and uh, Infrastructure as a Service to integrate Dynamics Online with those on-prem systems that still had to exist, like their policy admin systems, billing systems, document management systems. They had lots of kind of entrenched systems that they needed to integrate to. So there was lots of work done there too. So there's some third-party add-ons for the financial advice industry. Were any of those evaluated and were any options looked mm. at where you could plug in a third-party application or were their requirements considered to be so custom that they were going to have to develop their own custom solution in response? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's very attractive, isn't it, to kind of say, okay, maybe we can go to market and get something. And they did try that to an extent, but they, they could never find a solution that sort of fitted how they wanted it. One of the things that, that made them choose Dynamics is its flexibility to integrate with and build kind of whatever you need with you know tempered with okay we don't have to code everything there's quite a lot of configuration that we can do and we can do that ourselves so that was a decision point for them they did actually use a couple of um, third-party add-ons one which was a rules engine which was um, to codify a lot of the very complex decision making that needs to happen when you're choosing financial products and make sure that you obey by regulations and, and everything else and you're taking the entire customer scenario into account so they could codify a lot of that work that financial advisors do and still do but to shortcut some of that process too and make sure that um, everybody's following the same sort of process and they also looked at um, add-ons for generating documents as well so the out-of-the-box functionality you get for generating documents wasn't really cutting it, and um, they looked at a couple of different options for that. Oh, that, that's interesting. I've implemented Dynamics 365 systems in the past alongside fairly sophisticated document generation capabilities mm. where we're you know, 
generating different documents with addendums based on data in Dynamics 365. Yeah. And in my current project, we're also implementing a rules engine as well. Okay. We want to give users a configurable set of rules where they can have an analyst in their team modify those rules mm. from time to time and calculate things like customer loyalty based on, yeah. again, factors in Dynamics 365. Yeah, definitely. And that was the driver for them too, in that actually to be able to put these this rule set into a computer system, you'd need to know what you're doing, both in terms of the rules and also financial services regulations, you know, uh, and everything they need to follow. So they need people that are specialists in that, not very technical people, but they needed a user interface where actually those people that knew their industry really well could write those rules. Yeah. Um, so that was the decision-making, uh, that was an aspect of the decision-making process for that. So what was your role in the project, Andrew? You weren't an employee of Devon Financial Services mm. and you weren't employed by the Microsoft partner. Were you no. an independent consultant sitting in the middle between the two parties? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know, a good question. So I joined actually just before they started the Dynamics implementation. And I was brought in basically because they knew that they didn't have any Dynamics 365 knowledge within the business, or they had very, very little. And so in a sense, they wanted to buy that in um, and help train up people within the program on Dynamics. So that was something I was there to do. And something else I was there was to look at what the partner was doing, making sure it was best practice, making sure you know everything was documented properly. It was using the right functionality, uh, both in terms of what comes out of the box, but also strategically, okay, you know, don't use this function because that's going to be deprecated next year. Yep. So, yeah, that's something that I was doing as well, reviewing the work that they did to make sure it was um, up to scratch. And that kept me busy. And how did that partner feel about that relationship? Did that go smoothly or was that a contentious one? You know, that's interesting. Um, I think it's always going to be contentious. And um, that's something that I've, I've done this uh, for a couple of customers now. And it is something that you need to manage really well. I, I, my personal opinion is that you shouldn't be afraid. If you're proud of what you're doing as a partner and you've got good people, you shouldn't be afraid of somebody else looking at it and, and making sure that in their opinion, it's, it's also good. But yeah, it did. It did cause some, you know, some contention at times, certainly. But I was there for the customer, and the customer should—they have every right to expect good quality service from any of their suppliers. And so, I happened to be there to do it for Dynamics, but obviously, you can do it for any other kind of system as well. Yes, you know, I had to manage that. Yeah, I'm in a slightly different position. I've hired a great team of freelance consultants, mm. and our client wanted to validate the quality of the work that we've done. So they hired Microsoft Consulting Services to perform a solution architecture assessment okay. on the system that we had built. And you know, it's Microsoft, right? So they have a very important opinion when it comes to assessing the solution architecture. And now suddenly the shoe is on the other foot. Yeah. I knew that my yeah. team had done a great job, but I have to admit, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with somebody scrutinizing our work so closely. Mm. Thankfully, we got a very positive result mm. out of the assessment and we can all breathe a sigh of relief that we've done a good job. You know, I, and I totally get that. And I always try to look at it from both sides. I've never been one to kind of come in and say, okay, are you doing this, that or the other wrong, or you should be doing this. There's always reasons, or there's almost always reasons. Some of them might be, you know, technical, some of them might be external factors, but people make decisions about how to do things in a certain way for reasons at the time. Maybe they were valid at the time and then no longer valid now or they're still valid now. But yeah, there's generally 
two sides to the story. So I, I, I'm always one for coming in and talking to both sides to try and understand why things have been done in a certain way. So, uh, yeah, I completely get that it may be a bit uncomfortable. Um, having worked for partners myself, you know, I think I have that perspective too. So, and it don't, I don't think it's healthy for that relationship to have somebody come in, do that scrutiny and maybe give everybody a hard time. It's not going to help that partner relationship. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there to help, but I'm there to get the customer a good result for uh, without causing, you know, any further issues. <laughs> so that would be a negative outcome for me. So, Andrew, I don't want to ask a question where the answer is too obvious, but would you recommend that every Microsoft customer, at least those that don't have any experience implementing Dynamics 365 before, hire an independent consultant to work alongside their Microsoft partner during an implementation? Um, uh, well, what can I say? Um, in, my <laughs> view, in my view, I think you know it's definitely suitable for some projects and for some companies. I think particularly when you don't have anybody in-house that can look at something and say, okay, well, that looks great, or that doesn't look quite right, or maybe that doesn't quite satisfy the requirement. That, that There was quite a lot of that where there was kind of, you know, part of my role there was to, on this program, to be that translator between the business, because I understood and I grew to understand their business, and the partner who maybe didn't quite understand some of the nuances of that business. And so for me to be that translator and vice versa, yeah, customers a lot of the time are not used to working with partners and they're not used to working, not used to working in a certain way, maybe agile uh, or even waterfall. Um, and they're also not used to dynamics. And so to be that translator the other way, you know, to, to interpret something that the partner's saying to say, okay, this is what they're aiming at and, and this is how it's going to impact you as a customer. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the work was that translation being in between. So in that way, you know, if you don't have somebody in-house that can do that, you are putting a lot of trust in your partner, which you should be able to do, you know, absolutely. They're called a partner for a reason. But sometimes I think particularly when things get commercially sensitive, you know, that partnership, that relationship can break down a little bit, you know, and that's when maybe you do need an independent view, somebody to come along and say, whoever it might be, would be me or Microsoft or, you know, somebody else to do an assessment and say, actually, yeah, we think that's right. Or, or maybe you should change yep. this. Yeah, it's definitely something I'd recommend every customer do. Mm. You know, some customers are great to work with and Microsoft partners will enjoy sending their best consultants along to that client's site to perform the best possible work. Mm. Other customers just seem to have a, I don't know what it is, a cultural mismatch yep. with their Microsoft partner and the relationship just never builds into a nice, healthy working relationship. Yes. And sometimes they need that independent consultant in the middle to help align those cultures a little bit, smooth off yeah. the rough edges so that everybody can get along and get a great job done. Yeah, yeah, you know, certainly that's what it's all about. I think that partner-customer relationship is a difficult one to maintain. You are literally kind of getting into bed with that, that, those people and, and the dynamic between them you have to work at. It is like being married to an extent, you know, you have to work at it yep. and, and be consistent in it because you do get bumps in the road and decisions are made that, maybe put people's noses out joint and things like that. So, yeah, you need to carry on working at it, even when you're happy initially. Tell me more about the approach the client used on this project, Andrew. Was it an mm. agile approach or was it more of a traditional approach based on SureStep? Yeah, that's um, the, that <laughs> SureStep. 
That's yeah, that's interesting because actually when I joined the project, they were just starting off proof of concept. So they'd selected Dynamics and they were very happy with that, but they wanted to know if it was technologically going to fit with their estate and the other systems that they used, whether they'd be able to do things like the configuration themselves and, and that's something I help with, and also whether they could work with the implementation partner and also whether they could work agile. As a business, can we work agile? And this was the first kind of big program that they were considering doing agile. So they did a three-month proof of concept against all these different aspects, uh, and it worked really, really well. They had a backlog already because they'd spent a lot of time developing it. A really great team that was quite close-knit, that we all worked together in one building, in one floor in one building, that was kind of separate to the rest of the business. And that was good in a lot of ways, maybe negative in some way. Hmm. But um, we, we really got into the agile way of working. And because a lot of people hadn't worked that way before, you know, something else that I helped with. But it worked really, really well. And we came out of the proof of concept and said, okay, great. I think we can work agile, you know, before we actually embark on the main program itself, you know. Our outcomes here are that we think we can do this agile. We've got a great team, and we've got a backlog of work that's quite well developed. And, um, you know, let's let's crack on. And there was a decision that was made, but actually around that time, the partner relationship, lots of things were going on with the partner, and they actually ended up changing partner. So that was difficult, and that delayed things a bit. So uh, another partner selection process happened, and we got a new partner in, quite a big company. And then we had to make the decision again, okay, do we go Agile, do we go Waterfall? And they basically, in fairness, said, choose one or the other. Don't try and do both. <laughs> and unfortunately, <laughs> with the best will in the world, it, 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 it's very tempting to look at Agile and say, well, actually, that worked really well. You know, stand-ups worked really well for us. Backlog management worked really well for us. We'd like to carry on those things. But actually, now that we're expanding into the rest of the business and we're impacting in lots of other areas, the IT department, uh, business process change in lots of different departments, they couldn't work as quickly as we needed them to work. They couldn't make decisions quickly enough. There wasn't the culture of doing that. You know, it's quite an old company, very embedded processes. And so there was a decision made that actually we're going to walk, work waterfall, but with the bits of agile that we like. So, you know, you've probably come across this before, this kind of agile, water agile approach. You're trying to do the best of both worlds, and that isn't that isn't, I would say, always very successful. So w- what we ended up with was a methodology of slow waterfall, if you like. So we actually had phases. Uh, I think there's five or six phases, and we would do a, a design phase based on the requirements we have, a development phase, and a test phase, and then obviously we training and, and other things happening around that business readiness. Mm-hmm. And we would stagger those phases. So we would do the first design phase, and then that would go into, so that's design up front and requirements up front, and that would actually get signed off. And then it would go into development. And then when that went into development, we'd start the second phase of design. And then when the first phase of of development has finished and it went into test, we would start the second phase of development and also the third phase of design. And so there was this sort of staggered start on all of the phases. Um, Yeah, it sounds like overlapping phases all at the same time, right? Yeah, Um, which on paper looks great. Uh, It actually, you know, it may be obvious, but it ends up being very complicated to manage. And and sometimes you're drawing on the same resources 
that you need in two different phases because actually you need some of the design people to look at what's being developed and you need some of the testers to look at what's being developed and then you need the developers to help with the testing you know and that so you, there is an overlap of, of resources and then some things change maybe you have external factors or you need to coordinate with a couple of other third-party vendors not just the implementation partner and also with the internal IT department because they're developing stuff as well. And you need to coordinate all these drops that are happening across all these different you know, vendors and systems. And that gets very, very complex. And that really did add to um, the complexity of trying to deliver that program. Another lens on top of that was there were multiple work streams happening. There were six work streams, I think, that were working on different different areas of the of the program. So one for CRM dynamics, one for maybe uh, the, the rules engine development, one for testing, one for business readiness, you know. And again, that has to be overlaid against these phases. Uh, again, very complex. Project management in each of those work streams, there was a big data migration that had to happen as well. So that was a big thing that was going on throughout. So lots of spinning plates, you know, lots of complexity. That... You know, in hindsight, again, benefit of hindsight, I was actually having a chat with the, this customer the other day, and, and even they agree, they probably took on too much in one go. And if they had maybe started with a smaller area of focus and delivered that, even using the same methodology and just with less complexity and gone out to a, a group of users rather than trying to do everything um, over this these phases stretched over an 18 month period roughly uh, and then there was kind of initial design and requirements up front before that and there was lots of testing and everything else happening after that business readiness happening after that so they they probably should have gone smaller but so we're still calling this a successful project right would you say it's a successful mm. project despite of its structure and the approach rather than because of it i think it was a bit of both you know this is why i've kind of put a lot of thought into actually what I was going to talk about and there were definitely very successful elements of that program and there were also things decisions made that were very unhelpful and it what that's the it was you know we delivered it in spite of these other things and quite often there were external factors and decisions made outside of the program but yes there was a lot of good work that went on and I would have to say that actually the team that I worked with was the best team that I've ever worked with in my career on any project really lots of people that are at the top of the game who worked really, really well together. And that was a massive benefit of, of working on that project. And also those people helped it be as, as successful as it was. Without them, it wouldn't have been as successful. How many people would you say were involved in the project at its peak? Um, at its peak, there were there was a whole floor of one building. So it was something like 80 or 90 people beavering away at one go. So pretty big in terms of the projects that I've worked on, but trying to coordinate all those people and the delivery of all those different things, you know, like you say, a uh, complex beast. What would you say the other main challenges were on this project, as well as the organization of it and the complexity? Mm. Any other technical challenges that they had to overcome? Um, I would say, yeah, there were definitely technical challenges with integration there because, you know, we we're doing things that were slightly cutting edge with Azure Service Bus and trying to get data in and out of Dynamics. You know, there wasn't Power Platform around, there wasn't Flow and all that kind of stuff. And where we had to integrate with on-prem systems, 
we also had to integrate with the existing enterprise service bus, which had a lot of kind of technical issues with it. And so the integration, so you, you do something in Dynamics and that would fire a message to Azure, Azure service bus, which would fire a message to the enterprise service bus on-prem, which would go off and talk to the other system and then return something back again or maybe generate a document or whatever it was. That took a long, long time to get working. Actually, the dynamic side and the Azure side was much easier than anything else. Um, it was getting the on-prem systems to uh, be performant enough, to be responsive enough, and to actually be up, <laughs> to have good enough uptime um, to support what we were trying to do. Uh, and that was something that the, the IT department hadn't really done before. They'd invested a lot of money in this enterprise service bus and their on-prem systems, you know, millions and millions. Uh, and so they couldn't go changing them, um, but also there was a lot of cost involved in those systems as well. So, you know, just to spin up an environment for doing some testing uh, with the on-prem systems too, so a fully integrated environment, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of license cost, infrastructure cost, everything else. So, and lots of time to, to do that too. So, yeah, I would say... That was the technical complexity. Uh, it did, when I reflected back on it and, and we were doing some kind of presentations on what we built to other people, you know, you look back and you think, actually, we did build a hell of a lot of stuff and it did work. It just took a long time. Well, that really reflects the journey that my project team has been on over the last 12 months as well. Mm. We're also dealing with Azure service buses and API gateways at the edge and on-premise and integrating through those. And we're using synchronous calls because we can't afford our data to be out of sync right. between Dynamics 365 and our line of business systems. Yeah. So we're using the guaranteed delivery feature of a synchronous call to make sure those systems stay in sync and the customer exists in every system at the same right. time. Yeah, that sounds very similar. And so one of the things that we have is a decisions register to track why we're doing those things. Yeah. yeah. All too often our documentation says, this is how it works, but We've also got this decision register that says, this is why it works that way. Okay. So we've analyzed the options. This was the recommended option at the time mm. based on the information that we had. Yeah. Now, in the future, we might learn more about the I, system and we might need to change our decision. But we can look back at the decisions yeah. register and see why we made that decision at the time. Not every agile practitioner is a big fan of something like a decisions register, but I think it's a useful artifact for anybody to have particularly if they're practicing emergent design. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. And that's something that we tried to embed in that project as well, in that um, even if it wasn't in a separate register, it was in the STS story or it was somewhere. So you had that traceability. We, something we did struggle with was traceability about, okay, you know, why was something done in a certain way? And also, has that requirement been developed in the way we expect in being tested? And actually, this is the release it went out in. Uh, and that that is difficult to do. But keeping those decisions, I think, is important because eventually you do need to look back on some of those, probably not all of those, and say, actually, why the hell did we do that? You know, some of the things, the decisions that we made on that program, if we'd have done that again now, we have many different technology options available and, and we probably would have made different decisions. But, you know, that's the sort of thing you need to understand when you look at it again and, and maybe you think, well, why is that done like that? You know, a decision register, I think, is really important and really helpful. Because there's always reasons, you know, there's always reasons for doing things in a certain way. I'd love to find out more about, you mentioned that the team on this project was the best ever. Yeah. Was that the client's team members or was it the Microsoft partner team members? And mm. what was it, what qualities did they have that made them such a perfect fit for this project? 
Yeah, I think, you know, looking at what was a primary factor for success on this program, uh, I was reflecting over and, and I do think it was the team of people. And that's a difficult thing because you can't, you know, you can't necessarily buy in good people or get good people on your project these just it was a, a combination of kind of circumstance and good luck and you know people that had the same sort of mindset and, and high energy it just ended up being a great team to work with um, mainly on the customer side actually the customer team was much much bigger than the implementation implementation partner team their team was probably 20 people at a peak but normally less than that and some offshore resources as well but uh, actually getting people that you can work with at a partner is important we didn't always get that right um, but i have to say that a lot of the people that we worked with through that partner were very very good particularly on their design side they were very good at user interface design but the team from the customer there were everyone brought something different to the game there was a really really good leader who was very high energy uh, i think that's very important uh, to have somebody that's kind of not geeing everyone up but you know bringing them along when you work on a big program with lots of people and there's long hours sometimes it's very hard you know to keep going and maintain that for months and months and months and you need somebody that kind of will break things up a bit and be but come up with intelligent comment and intelligent feedback and also be fun to be around. Mm. Uh, we had a good program manager who was very similar. She was, you know, I don't actually how she did it without having a breakdown, but um, she, she herded all these cats, you know, loads and loads of people, loads of different work streams and dates and everything else. She was really good. And then on individual areas, so we had a really good person on rules design. We had a really good person on business analysis and requirements management, excellent person on that. And he really set up the Azure DevOps, the VSTS that we, we were using to manage all these requirements through the, that process into development, test, and everything else. And that was really, really important. We had very knowledgeable business people, but a real can-do, exciting um, vibe from from everybody uh, and that really really helped keep everybody going you know, we would go out socially and things like that and uh, and I, I i think that's been very difficult i've worked on one or two other projects like that in my career but generally people are a bit like okay i come to work i do my work and i go home we were very close-knit on that program and i think that was a that was a massive benefit you mentioned one of the tools that they used on this project was Azure DevOps. Hmm. I'd be interested to know what other tools you might have used on this project. And in fact, even whether tools play a vital part in a project yeah. or maybe not at all. Yeah, you know, actually, I've, I've been um, dealing with another customer about this uh, recently as well, that I think, you know, whether you're using Azure DevOps or a similar tool, it doesn't really matter, but actually DevOps, in my experience, is very, very good at managing the life cycle of software development, all the way from initial requirements and managing those, and maybe managing a Kanban board or whatever you want to call it, you know, managing the actual work that needs to get in, go into that, managing development tasks and the, the effort that goes into that. You, know, you can have your burn down to see what's happening, managing the defects that come out of the development uh, and the life cycle around those, managing testing, test scripts, you know, and into builds and then into releases. And actually, we did automated releases through DevOps as well. That process and that tool set, I thought, helped the program enormously. You do have to get everybody using it, and that was a challenge. 
particularly the project managers. <laughs> <laughs> but but just having one tool you could go to and say, okay, what's happening at the moment? I haven't got seven different spreadsheets that I've got different defect lists on or different user stories on. Or, you know, as soon as you take something out of a system like that, it's out of date. You know, things move on so quickly. Yep. And when you're passing spreadsheets around, you know, and actually you said you had 100 defects. And, oh, no, I've got 104. And no, I've got 96. You know, just having a, one source of truth, whether it's a DevOps system or something else, uh, I think is really, really important. And I've been trying to impress that on people that, you know, I've worked with since. Other tools in terms of managing the project, I mean, obviously there's things like uh, Microsoft Project, which uh, was maybe some success and some not success but um yeah I, I don't think other than sort of third-party vendor tools that we use to actually implement the system uh, i can't think of any others that were as impactful as uh, devops or vsts as we used to call it so looking back now andrew with the benefit of hindsight you've been away from the project for a year are there challenges mm. about that project that you wish you could do differently yeah i think you know primarily not not a technical reason but I, they did struggle with sponsorship you know i th i feel like some change management is something i'd be getting into more and more over the last couple of years and understanding the role of a sponsor and the role of senior stakeholders in, in the success of a project it just it cannot be underestimated it's the primary thing that comes out of research as, as to why projects are successful or not active and visible sponsorship and they really struggled with that on this program in that they maybe initially had a sponsor that was interested that, that could really bang the drum at the exec level and senior stakeholders and encourage them to get on board. And then that person moved on and then they had somebody else who wasn't engaged. And then, you know, that chopped and changed a lot during that um, project lifecycle. And that was really quite unhelpful in trying to embed the project after go live because those people weren't brought along for the journey during the program. And so they weren't evangelizing to their people who could evangelize, you know, through the middle management who could get to their boots on the ground and really encourage people about actually what's coming, how it's going to be different for them, how it's going to help them. That was lost and diluted quite a long, uh, quite a lot along the way. Uh, so that really, really didn't help once we go live, once we went live. In terms of, you know, sort of other aspects, I would say that project management wise, for me, I don't see enough visibility of key milestones key dates um the thing that we're delivering right now why it's important what's the reason for doing it and have everybody aware of that when you've got a lot of people 80 90 people having everybody aware of what's going on even though they're doing different jobs you know some of them might be doing business readiness or comms or you know nothing to do with the actual implementation uh, like hands-on but having everyone aware of what we're driving at right now, I think, is very, very important. And that's probably something that they didn't do um, well enough. They did do weekly comm sessions, which I thought were really, really good. Actually, every, uh, the senior team kind of stood up in front of everybody every week and said, OK, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening. And did uh, sort of encouragement things like Star of the Week and, you know, some fun things like that as well. Great. Um, so there was that communication on that side, but, you know, there wasn't enough focus on the different work streams when they were delivering and the milestones that we had to hit, you know, so to kind of keep everybody going forward. So a big program weekly meeting, that's not something I've used before in any of my larger projects. But you're saying even that was insufficient on its own to yeah. help bring everybody up to speed about what's going on in the program? Yeah, that kind of tended to be, it, was, it wasn't it was very long, it was sort of a 15-minute session, but um, it was good in that 
it it let people know about some things that were happening, but maybe on that slightly lower level of everyone communicating more. And you've probably come across this before that uh, the work streams tended to work in silos. They were so focused yeah. on what they were doing. They weren't aware enough of what was happening over in these teams over here and what they were delivering. You know, the communication, I've not got a simple answer for this, but communication across those work streams was not strong enough. And that, that, didn't help at all along the way but um you know things were done that were good you know there was a business readiness work stream which actually they put much much more effort into that than i'd seen any other program do in terms of getting the business ready for what's coming but actually as it turned out you know that looked really good at the time but as it turned out even that was massively underestimated in terms of the effort that was needed on training on you know getting people on new technology new laptops new phones different ways of working you know that sort of thing so they did a lot but it turned out to be not enough so that's an interesting point of view i haven't considered before that communication and, and change management i always think of as a outward facing activity from the project mm. team out to our stakeholders but you're saying on larger programs we also need to bear in mind the communication across the program team members yes and make sure that everybody's got open channels of communication and knows what's going on your project's a similar size to the one i'm working on at the moment and i'm not sure that everybody in my project team has got the benefit of great communication and, mm. and knows what's going on i'll have to reflect on that i think um you know there's a couple of points there i think it does matter where people are physically located uh, i think that's it's my personal opinion i don't feel like working with remote teams works as well in terms of communication unit you've got things like skype and uh, well, teams and uh, slack and things like that which were good but i don't think you can be actually being in the same place and walking across the corridor walking across the room and talking to somebody about something that's happening it's my personal view so that's a really, really good way to very subtly improve communication just to have people uh, in the same place. I've, I've been reflecting on change management myself as well in that you can apply it to so many different things. And actually, some of the things that didn't go very well on that program, you could say they were as a result of change management not working because it wasn't applied to the program itself. You know, people didn't know what was happening or they weren't on board with changes that were happening. So we didn't actually manage the internal stakeholders uh, particularly well. So it wasn't just the overall change that was happening to the business. Actually, you could apply some of those change management principles to the project itself. So that could be more successful. So yeah, that's something definitely something I need to think about a bit more. So Andrew, I just want to recap some of the critical success factors that you find on this project. One of those was hiring an independent consultant like yourself. <laughs> uh, the second one I took a note of was to use a proof of concept yes. to test some of the high-risk technical items yeah. and tr try and mitigate those risks early in the project. And business risks, yeah. Another one was don't change your Microsoft partner if at all you can help it. Mm. And it's hard to operate an agile project within a waterfall technology organization. So brace yourself if that's the environment you find yourself in. You also mentioned the importance of having the right people. Yeah. You were lucky to have high energy, impactful client team members with the right mindset and strong leadership from your customer and uh, some great technical talented people from your Microsoft partner as well. Um, you mentioned Azure DevOps as the tool set mm -hmm. that your team was using. Pretty much front to back, it sounds like, from requirements through to your yeah. boards and tasks, defects, testing, um, your builds and releases were all managed within Azure DevOps, and that helped enormously. 
But one challenge, it sounds like you really suffered from, was the sponsorship and the way that your sponsors changed throughout the course of the yeah. program. And I, I feel for you because in those big enterprise projects where you're going right across departments, you have to go very high up in the organization, find somebody to sponsor such a, a wide ranging program of work. You do. And quite often, that's somebody in the executive team, somebody in the board of directors, and they don't have a lot of spare time on their hands. No, you need an exec really, and you need somebody that, that can dedicate the time to it. So that means that yep. they're not doing other things, and that, and that needs to be backfilled. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hugely important. So you talked about the amount of business readiness and change management effort that your client had put into this project, but even more would have helped, mm. and especially within the project team, to open up those lines of communication as well. Being co-located helped, but we can always do more even within our project to help everybody stay on the same page. So that's some fantastic advice, Andrew. Thanks for sharing that. Is there anything else that we've missed out that I haven't asked you about yet? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, if I could throw in one thing, actually, um, that I was mulling over is um, requirements. What I saw was that requirements are fundamentally important to successfully delivering a project. Not as important as maybe some other things, but if you don't have fully fleshed out requirements, you just slow down all the way along. You know, if you think you've got your requirements sorted and you sign them off and then you give them to a developer, and they build what you've given them, and then you turn around and say, oh, yeah, actually, we didn't think about that. Or maybe you assumed something was going to work in a certain way, and that happened quite a lot. Uh, there were some assumptions there, uh, and actually when it turned out that wasn't the case, that you know, you get into that change request cycle and everything else, and that kind of causes tension between the partner and, and the customer too. Yeah, re getting requirements right and managing those really well is very, very important. Yeah, I think it's no secret that I'm a big fan of just-in-time requirements elaboration. I like to refine the requirement just before we start development, yeah. give the users a chance to see early prototypes, provide their feedback, yes. we refine it, and we deliver the final product uh, within the course of a two-week iteration. Yeah, definitely. I think keeping developers and users as close together as possible is really important. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to hear all those uh, great pieces of advice. So really appreciate it. If people want to follow you on social media and keep up with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, thanks for having me on. It's been good to talk about that project and reflect on some of the things that went really well. Yeah, if you want to contact me, I'm on LinkedIn often, Andrew Bibby. You can just search me on there or I'm on Twitter at Andrew Bibby or... Yeah, come along to the next user group meeting in London. Definitely. Love for you to come along to the user group and come and say hello. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Well, you inviting me, I'll be there at the drop of a hat if you can pay for my ticket over. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd love to see you there. <laughs> yeah, I'll take you up on that someday. Meanwhile, you're more than welcome to yeah. come out to visit us in Australia. We're having a series of Dynamics Power Saturdays. So come and join us here in Australia. Uh, well, likewise, I'd love to as well. And I'm a bit jealous that you're doing this thing with Neil Parkhurst on um, USD workshops. That sounds like a great event. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate it. See you next time. Bye for now. Thanks a lot, Neil. Cheers. So just a quick reminder that you can take the Daily Scrum Challenge at customary.com slash Daily Scrum. You can take the quiz and if you'd like, you can sign up for the 10-day Daily Scrum Challenge at customary.com slash Daily Scrum. I hope you find that episode valuable 
And I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player. I love putting together these episodes for you. So I want to thank you all for subscribing and for listening to the show. The feedback that I get through the website and through LinkedIn makes this all worthwhile. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.